Hey guys, welcome back to Just the Good Stuff. This is your host, Rachel Mansfield, and I am a woman of my word. We are back with three back-to-back episodes. I promise you, we are back in action. And this week's episode, I am super excited to share because today's interview, we are chatting with Dr. James D. Nickel Antonio. He is a doctor of pharmacy and a cardiovascular research scientist and a complete expert on all things health and nutrition. I have to give it to Jordan here because he was so excited to bring James on the podcast. And when we started brainstorming some new guests to bring on, he's like, Rachel, we have to bring James on. I love his content. I've been following him for years and he just shares so many like helpful tips, words of wisdom, and he's such a great person to really learn from. We had so many things to talk about with him and this conversation it's filled with a ton of information that I've already listened back to this episode a few times to like really absorb everything that James has to say. We chat about a variety of topics like how much sunlight we should be getting daily, how to make changes that help us live a healthier lifestyle every day, what workouts are best, how parents can maintain a healthy lifestyle with kids because we all know that is not so easy, all things magnesium and so much more. He's a best-selling author. He has so many amazing books. I'm linking to all of them in the show notes. And I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed chatting with James. Definitely follow him over on Instagram. Let us know what you think of this episode. Rate, review the podcast when you're listening. Tag me over on Instagram and tag James so we can hear what you think. And I cannot wait for you to listen. So I will shut up now so you can enjoy this week's episode. We're going to jump right on in. Uh, we have a lot of questions for you, both from us to um, the listeners. You have a very impressive fan base and very loyal supporters that really love and admire everything that you say. And we love the information that you give. Jordan, my husband, actually turned me on to your account a few months ago. And my mother-in-law, my dad, we all are huge fans. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Yeah, happy to join. Um, I'd love to start off and have you introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Sure. So my degree is a doctor of pharmacy, um, and I'm also a cardiovascular research scientist at St. Luke's Mid-American Heart Institute. So primarily, I do a lot of research in the preventive cardiology department under Dr. James O'Keefe, mostly on nutrients and supplements around heart health, but also things like immunity and and stuff like that. Um, I've probably published over 300 papers in academic literature. I'm also the associate editor of British Medical Journal's largest open access cardiology journal, which is BMJ Open Heart. And I've written uh, six books uh, on health and wellness, things like that. You've written six. I have, so I know of three of your books, Salt Fix, Mineral Fix, and When. What are your other books? Uh, the Longevity Solution, uh, Super Fuel, which is really like good fats versus bad fats. The Immunity Fix, The Mineral Fix. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. Well, that's very impressive. As someone who's written one book, I that is very impressive that you have cranked out all these books. So... Let's do one jump right on in yeah, questions. Do. Okay. So I want to kick off first with questions that really have to do with more like a healthy lifestyle. Um, so more like general, I would say like health and every everyday living. So for someone, what are some red flags for people to know 
if they need to make lifestyle changes? Like what are some signs that someone can look for and be like, wow, that I probably something isn't right. Uh, how you feel after you eat energy wise, basically gastrointestinal symptoms. You really shouldn't have um, a lot of bloating or, or gastrointestinal pain after you eat um, energy levels, fatigue, uh, waist circumference. And then from like a lab perspective, triglycerides, glucose, A1C are things to look for, you know, good, good cholesterol, HDL. You can look at total cholesterol, but in, in the terms of having, let's say, quote unquote, high cholesterol, if you have a good triglyceride level, you have good insulin sensitivity. There's really not a lot of data suggesting that high cholesterol levels on its own outside of like homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia is like a true risk factor for heart disease. Didn't you have high triglycerides? Yeah, I've had a family history of high high triglycerides. Mm -hmm. Between diet and then fish oil, I feel like was like the one thing that every doctor has told me to take. It's really, and then exercise, it's been totally under control. Yeah, the fish oil works really well, especially if you get to doses of like three to four grams of EPA or DHA then you can start seeing like 30, 40% uh, drops in triglyceride levels. Now, what about bloating? So you don't think anyone should ever feel like if, if I eat a meal and if, like, usually for me, it's after dinner, like before I'm going to bed and my stomach's a little inflamed or bloated, that's a sign that it's something's off. Or it can be. I mean, if you're, if you're consuming fibrous foods, then you're going to have probably some bloating that's going to be natural because you know, you're, you're hitting the stretch receptors and that's why fiber is so satiating. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you're having like abnormal bloating, just eating like a little bit of food, then that can indicate like nutrient deficiencies, particularly in B vitamins, especially vitamin B one, which controls your vagus nerve and how that controls gastric secretion and gastric gastric emptying and things like that. Do you have tips to de-bloat or like supplements or go-to things that you recommend? So it depends like, okay, if you're just trying to like not find the root cause, there are supplements like Guard, which is like a patented licorice root extract that's been shown to help with bloating. But if you're trying to fix the root cause, um, then, you know, high doses of B1 can potentially help if someone's B1 deficient. And we're, we're kind of told that like we get a lot of vitamin B1 and it's true. Like technically we do most people like 98% of people get the RDA, but the problem is, is things like coffee, tea, alcohol, dramatically deplete thiamine. Um, even polyphenols and things like blueberries, red chicory, beetroot can actually break open the thiamine molecule. So like, I, I was probably severely thiamine depleted because I consumed like nine cups of coffee for like a decade. And I started having um, problems with bloating after even just eating a small amount of food. And, and after taking high doses of, of thiamine, it's helped with, with a bunch of things, not just, not just bloating, but also like reflux, like throat mucus, and even um, exercise performance as well. I should look into my B1. Mm-hmm. I feel the same way. I mean, I drink a lot of coffee, a lot of beets. Um, a lot of those things you just said are like in my diet almost every day. Yeah. Like you want to space out typically your 
B you're just like, let's say a regular B1 supplement. You want to take that like an hour before coffee or food that contains B1 an hour before coffee. Or if you consume coffee, then you want to wait two hours before you consume B1 sources. That way you're not splitting open the molecule and you're not inhibiting the transporters that absorb thiamine in the intestine. There's so much to know. It's insane. What are your thoughts on like coffee and caffeine in general? Like, are you pro having coffee? Yeah, I have one cup in the morning now. And that just started maybe like four weeks ago. Like up until then, I mean, it was a decade of consuming six to nine cups of coffee per day. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. I know. And I know you're a huge sleep proponent and that did not affect your sleep. Uh, I think because I was so tolerant yeah. at that point, it didn't. But like now, because I only drink one cup of coffee, even that one cup, I actually get a little sweaty and a little shaky. Whereas I, that never happened. Like once when I was consuming like a good amount of coffee per day. So I think I just like developed a tolerance to it. And I usually would never consume it at, at least for the last couple of years after like one o'clock. So, you know, at least 50% was out of my system, but yeah, I can definitely mess up certain people's sleep for sure. Do you have another go-to beverage or like something you could fuel your body with to give you like a boost of energy, but that's not like caffeine or coffee? Uh, walking outside. <laughs> I mean, I, I honestly think like if you're struggling with energy, taking that second or third cup of coffee actually makes things worse. If you just kind of like get outside, get some fresh air, get some sunlight in five to 10 minutes, you're going to feel like a new person. So I don't drink any caffeine. I'm pretty energized naturally. So, but every morning I go for a walk and on the mornings that my walk will be, you know, an hour or so delayed, I'm so sluggish in the morning and also just kind of moody. Um, the second I hit that pavement outside and I'm going, it's like such a natural adrenaline rush for me. Yeah. Um, and I like swear by it as my jolt of something for the day. So yeah. that leads us actually one of our other questions, like about sunlight, like people who, how do you know if you're not getting enough sunlight? And like, I know it kind of sounds silly, but how, how can people incorporate it into their day? You know, if, if, if they're not getting outside enough. Yeah. I mean, well, so most people, the main issue is those who are, who are living up North and you typically, you still have sun year round. Okay. So I live in Rochester, New York, upstate New York. I'll still be outside catching a tan in January, December, as long as I can position my chair in a corner of the house that blocks the wind. And if it's sunny out, I can still actually catch like a tan in the winter. And I do that all the time because my house allows me, there's like a, there's a, there's a corner in the house where I can just kind of sit to. And it's typically the wind that prevents people from actually getting a decent amount of sunlight in the winter. Cause it's so cold with the wind that if you take your shirt off, it's freezing. But if you can block the wind, you can do, you can actually get sunlight that way. If it's too cold for you to do that, you can still just get outside in winter clothes and just expose your eyes to the outside light. Even on a cloudy day, you're going to get more um, light compared to inside. So sort of like I try to get morning, midday, and then like sunsets, try to hit all three if you can, but probably the most important would be morning sunlight, at least to set your circadian rhythms. Because when I say a lot of people kind of throw that term around, like it's a fancy term to say it helps set your circadian rhythm. And what that actually means is that when you get morning sunlight, it sets your melatonin release earlier 
And it also, you get a greater release of melatonin at night, getting sunlight in the morning. So it truly does set your natural circadian rhythm via melatonin release at night, which gets improved when you do that. So is that with clothes on or you have to be like, you have to have a lot of skin exposed? That's just, that's just literally getting outside and, and not, you don't have to like catch a tan or expose, like, you know, it's just getting light essentially into the eye. Not, you don't have to directly, you don't want to directly look at the sun. Right. But just getting natural light outside through the retina is going to do that. You got to start doing that later in the day. I'm going outside for like air. We leave in the morning and then yeah, we're good in the morning. But we literally come back. I come back, do work, and then our nanny leaves at six. And then, you know, it's dinner, bedtime, and I don't go back outside. But I think that's now that the warmer months are coming, we'll have to set up camp. And for someone who's trying to start to make changes or habits to like their lifestyle, where do you suggest they begin when it terms in terms of like eating and food? Like, are you like what? food groups or categories do you think really no one needs to be eating or like shouldn't be eating? Um, I would, I would say refined processed foods. No one should be eating that. Obviously there's like room for the 90, 10 or 80, 20 rule where 80% of your food is like, you know, whole foods. And then 20% is, is quote unquote junk food where I see a lot of divide is okay. Should you do a high carb, low fat, or should you do, you know, a, a low carb, high fat? And really what I, what I'm starting to find is sort of the best approach is probably low to moderate carb, um, moderate fat. So not high fat, just moderate in order to, you know, get the good healthy fats from like pastured eggs and a high protein intake, meaning essentially like one to 1.25 grams of protein per pound of body weight. And you would go to the higher end of that. If you're actually have more lean mass and more muscle mass, you would want to try to hit more around the 1.25 grams per pound of body weight. It's really fiber and protein that are most satiating for people. So essentially like protein gives you sustained satiety for like out to four hours, typically where fiber gives you that satiety right away. So you don't overeat. So like literally steak and potatoes is a great meal um, from the perspective of if you're not dumping butter and dumping like, like added fats onto the potato, then it's going to give you the fiber that's going to give you satiety very quickly. So you don't overeat and the steak is going to give you long-term satiety. So I like to, I practice an animal-based diet where about 80% of my calories are coming from animal foods and 20% from plant foods. And I do like to consume potatoes or bananas or those types, certain types of plant foods to offset the acid load uh, from the animal foods. So what about um, like sugar intake? You don't care about the sugar from fruit? Not only for people who are sort of like pre-diabetic, diabetic, they probably should watch how much fruit they consume, but also how you eat fruit. Like if you eat fruit after a meal that has protein, fat, and fiber, there's going to be a much lower glucose response than just eating a piece of fruit as a snack. But yeah, I typically eat probably like two pieces of fruit a day. I'll have like a mango and then I'll have like a, like a greenish banana. Something like that is typically what I do. What are your thoughts on dried mango? I would pair it after like a protein fiber intake. Okay. 
uh, yeah. It's my like biggest weakness in life is dried mango. Like the Instead cheeks, of, like the thick cheeks of dried mango are yeah. my, it's like candy to me. They're so good. You, you, don't, you don't eat candy and you eat that instead. So it's pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's fine. Um, so then what are your thoughts on like a plant-based lifestyle? Neither of us are plant-based in general, so you wouldn't be offending us, but like you said, you eat yeah. like 80% animal-based, but mm-hmm. do you think that there are certain like people that can do well on a primarily plant-based diet or just like most people, they do need some form of animal protein? I think people can do well on a plant-based diet, but I think they would do even better if they made it a little more animal, like if they brought some more animal foods into that diet. I, I went plant-based for about six months and I got real thin. Like I'm, I'm typically like 162. I was down to 147. So a lot of the weight was loss in muscle. Like people were coming up to me and they thought I was sick. Like they, like at work, they were like, is there something wrong? Cause the clothes were just kind of like hanging off of me. So yeah, if you want to get rail thin, if you go on a very high fiber diet, your caloric intake goes down so much because the fiber is so filling. But the problem is, is that you're not then getting the nourishment because you're so full after just eating all of this fiber. So women tend to do fairly well on a plant-based diet compared to men, typically on average. I hate to make generalizations, but you know, men typically on average do have more muscle mass. So women on average can get away with more plant foods uh, comparative to a man, typically. That's interesting. Yeah. I was just interviewing someone um, a couple of days ago who's like a diehard vegan. And I hang up the phone. I'm like, Jordan, I think we should be plant-based for like a few days and like see how we do. And then like, what am I going to have for dinner? Like I always need some type of like protein of sorts, like a my like chicken, lamb, like whatever it may be. But I didn't eat meat for six years. Yeah. Um, I was like a pescatarian and like, I, my energy was horrible. Like I, I personally just like had no energy. I didn't like feel right. Um, but I'm always so curious, like what people's, uh, take is on that. And then what are your thoughts on like gluten and dairy? Yeah. I think a lot of people don't tolerate those foods, but I also think, uh, they're a little over demonized, especially gluten. Cause if you think about it, like Gluten has been around for a long, long time. Like we, we've harvested wheat for at least 100,000 years. And there never seemed to be an issue really with celiacs and things like that. What seemed to happen is when you started to increase the intake of refined sugars, seed oils, um, things that damage the intestine. Now, all of a sudden, gluten is a problem. And also the addition of iron, the fortification of iron to processed grains has been shown to dramatically damage the intestine, damage the the gut microbiome. And that also coincides with an increase in celiac disease in in nations that fortify their grains with iron versus those that do not, did not really see the uptick in celiacs with, because they didn't add the iron, they didn't fortify the iron to their grains. So it's like sort of the chicken or the egg, like, is it the gluten itself or is it the things that are damaging the intestine that is causing people to not tolerate gluten? That being said, wheat is completely different than it was thousands of years ago. How it's grown, it's not grown in fertile soil anymore. So it's just, you're never probably going to get the wheat of the Hunza or the wheat of the, you know, the Egyptians that were, you know, consuming it on on the fertile crescent. It's just never going to be the same. 
I eat some Ezekiel bread, which is just sprout organic sprouted grains. Uh, I like it because it's, it's like a good snack. If I have a craving, I'll have maybe just a tiny bit of like nut butter and a toasted slice of Ezekiel bread. And I tolerate it just fine. But yeah, people should look out for it. If they eat gluten or if they eat dairy, if they have GI issues, they may be intolerant. And I think a lot of people do overconsume dairy and that gets them in trouble. Heavy cream, um, full fat yogurts. Now, that's not to say don't have those things. Actually having like a Greek or Icelandic yogurt with some nuts and a little bit of raw honey, it's probably a great snack. But a lot of people are overdoing the heavy cream, the full fat dairy. And that's a lot of people on keto. Part of their problem is that they overdo the dairy. And that leads to a lot of weight gain if you eat too much of it. When you say eat too much, is that like having it every day or is each serving just more than like a serving? Yeah, it's going to depend on the person, their activity level, their, their muscle mass. But typically, like I try not to have really more than one or two servings of dairy per day. So I'll have like maybe one Greek yogurt and maybe just a little bit of whole fat milk, like two to four ounces. When you start going above like six ounces of dairy per day, you start eating, you know, half a pound of dairy or a full pound of dairy a day. You know, and it adds up like, you know, you throw a couple slices of cheese on a burger, you know, all these things start adding up. You put heavy cream in your coffee. You, you can be eating easily a half a pound of dairy per day and not even realize it. Dairy, like on, truthfully makes me like mentally feel sick. I've never like I've never had a glass of milk in my life. I don't like cheese. Like I like like feta cheese or goat cheese in a salad. Um, but like a cheese board out to dinner with crackers and like, you know, cured meats is like my biggest nightmare. Um, so when we had to start giving, when I weaned off of breastfeeding for our second kid, I gave him like goat's milk. Cause to me, it was like a little bit more like selfishly, like tolerable for me to like pour into a bottle. Um, but even that, like with giving it to him, I give him like no more than eight ounces a day. Cause like, you don't need to consume so much dairy. Um, right. Especially for like a little body. What about intermittent fasting? What, what do you think about that as a good part of a health routine? The scientific term is time-restricted eating. And typically what it is, is you eat in like an eight hour window and you typically quote unquote, don't eat for 16 hours. I think it can help a lot of people, a lot of people who um, just tend to just overeat. But in the same token, a lot of people out there are, if you're working out a lot, you're, you know, you're building muscle, you don't probably even need an intermittent fast. Eating three square meals a day, you're fueling your workouts. You're going to have a lot more energy. So I just try to go with like my hunger signals. I really don't practice a lot of intermittent fasting right now because I'm working out five to six days a week. And I just feel like if I skip a meal and I only eat two meals, I don't feel like I have as much energy versus eating three meals. No, I appreciate that. I also think like I'm not a big... I feel like after talking to you and we dive into the workout fitness, which is next, I'm going to probably be more motivated to work out. But I feel like mentally for a lot of people, intermittent fasting can like really hurt them where like, you know, you miss out on social opportunities or like you're like so restrictive and structured about it. So I appreciate like what you even have to say where you listen to your hunger cues. I think that's gotten pretty lost in in the space for sure. If people incorporate one workout into their lives, what do you think it should be? one type of workout? Uh, if they only can do one, I would say some form of resistance training, even if that's just body weight exercises all the way up to lifting heavy weights, just because as you age, you lose muscle mass and that loss in muscle mass can contribute to insulin resistance. 
and really falls and fractures, which can end up killing you. So to build muscle and to increase the resilience of your collagen, your tendons, your ligaments, I think is important. But of course, everyone should also be doing some form of cardio, uh, walking 10 to 12,000 steps a day would be ideal doing some form of interval sprinting if you can. And yes, even jogging a little bit, AKA essentially zone two training where you're, you know, exercising at maybe like 60% of your max heart rate uh, for cardiovascular benefits. If you combine all of those aspects, that's obviously most ideal. And how many days a week? Uh, usually if you're just starting out on a routine, you're going to be sore for a while. So you probably can only get away with maybe two, maybe three workouts for that week. But ideally, and I've, and then I'm talking through personal experience. I have so much more energy if I work out five days a week versus just like three days a week. Sound like my dad. I don't mean that offensively, but my dad's, we're going to get to him. He's like an adrenaline workout. Nothing is stopping that man. Actually, speaking of him, I have a question. So my dad is like, he races cars. He does strength training every day. He's definitely like a very like built, built guy. He goes to see a cardiologist and they tell him that he has like an enlarged heart. Now, what do you reckon? Like, right. I know you have had to look at like someone's like actual like profile, et cetera, but he's like, what? Six, one, six, one, right. 200 pounds muscle, very, very good shape. And he comes home and he's like, oh, the cardiologist said I have an enlarged heart. I'm like, oh my God, maybe you shouldn't be doing so much strength training. Like maybe that's not good for your heart. Based off of your, if, have you seen any like research that states otherwise, or is like heavy duty strength training still okay for someone who might have an enlarged heart? So I can't give recommendations, but what I would say is, can you overdo exercise? Of course, it's typically not going to be from resistance training though. It's usually going to be overdoing running. You know, you're doing a marathon or a triathlon and you're actually damaging your heart because you're overdoing it. Now I would say, what's the full like heart workup? Like, did he get an EKG? How, how does everything look in regards to the QRS complex and the, the, the T wave and all these other things that can pick up um, potential issues with the heart? Because just, just having an enlarged heart on, on its own, I would need a lot more data to really understand the health of his heart. And hopefully he does get more tests to, to try to figure that out. Yeah. I'm like a paranoid like daughter. I'm like, Oh my God, like lay low. You're, you're 58. Like, come on. So also speaking of parents, a lot of the listeners are new moms or they have are moms with like younger kids. And if they stay home with their kids, like what are some things that they can do on a daily basis when they're fully present with their children that they can like better optimize their health? Um, if they don't have that as much time to focus on themselves. I mean, that I should call my wife down and have her answer this question. <laughs> Usually it's like having me like watch the kids so she can work out for 20 minutes, to be honest, because I mean, but I promote trying to actually get your kids to work out when you do it. So usually too, I'll, if I'm going to work out, I'll say, Hey guys, you want to come down and like work out with me in the basement? And she'll do that too. So I think um, if you can include the kids in a workout, they do their own little thing on the side or they can try to, you know, practice what you're doing, just using less weights or whatever, I think it's a good strategy. How old are your kids? Uh, seven and nine. Oh, nice. We have a three and one year old. So we're, uh, oh, wow. You're in the weeds. <laughs> yeah, we are. We are. We're, we're in the, we're in the thick of it right now. <laughs> um, now you talk a lot about type two diabetes and do you 
truthfully think that some, if someone has type two diabetes, like they could maybe reverse that with some lifestyle changes. Like, could you dive more into that? Sure. Uh, anyone who says you can't reverse type two diabetes has never looked at nutrient restriction studies that have been shown to induce type two diabetes simply by restricting a single nutrient in the diet. In other words, back in like the 1940s, there were many nutrient deficiency studies that were tested on humans to see if these nutrients were, let's say, quote unquote, essential. And, and if you were deficient in just one of them, what, it, what would happen if you're deficient in magnesium, copper, or vitamin B1, all of those have been shown to induce type two diabetes. And when you supplement them back, you reverse the type two diabetes. We have clinical studies showing this. So, you know, you can't say you can't reverse type two diabetes because we have proof that you can. Um, it just depends on what's causing it. And it depends how long you've had it for and if you've damaged too many beta cells to get like a full type of recovery. But yeah, I mean, it's totally a completely diet and lifestyle driven disease. So if you fix the diet and lifestyle, you can absolutely improve type two diabetes. What about like, I personally had gestational diabetes with both pregnancies. I'm a, I know you don't like know me in, in person, but I'm a pretty like petite frame. I didn't gain that much weight with either pregnancy. It seems to be more of like a genetic thing for me. Do you notice that if someone has, or if you've seen that if someone has gestational diabetes they are likely to have diabetes down the road? Oh yeah, they're much, you're at a much higher risk for sure. Doesn't mean you're going to, but that's a lot of it is driven by your your the baby is stealing a ton of nutrients from the mom. Vitamin B one, magnesium, inositol. So inositol uh, in uh, uh, women who are pregnant has been shown to dramatically reduce gestational uh, gestational diabetes by like 65, 70%. percent. Wow. Um, so. And supplementing with certain vitamins and minerals has been shown to improve gestational diabetes as well. So I think, um, you know, it, it could just be a nutrient steal. Um, it could be an increase in insulin resistance uh, due to, you know, just carrying the child. And then if it kind of improves afterward, then, you know, it's just like probably an acute thing that's happening. Yeah. I like tested my blood sugar levels after both pregnancies and they were within like the range that they, that they should be. But with, with both pregnancies, I failed to tests and blood sugar to like the monitor. I didn't have to do like insulin or anything, but, um, I had, I was like, had to be like pretty strict with my, with my diet, no dried mango while pregnant basically. Right. Um, but I'm going to look into those supplements that you said for, for if, if we go for a third. Um, I'd love to dive into magnesium because actually when I shared that you were coming on the podcast, I, chose a post of yours that was all about magnesium because that's personally something that resonated with me and we were joking yesterday because we were organizing some of the questions that we wanted to talk to you about and i'm not kidding you i think we had over like 50 different people ask about pure magnesium so we've consolidated those questions heavily but what magnesium supplement do you recommend taking every day like what source so if, okay, so it depends on the benefit that you're looking for, um, for brain health, magnesium L3 and eight has the most evidence, um, because it has, uh, evidence for improving cognition, um, and improving attention, IQ function, things like that. I mean, mag magnesium citrate, if you're not overdoing the dose, so just like taking hundred, 200 milligrams, 
So um, is a great bioavailable form, very cheap way to get magnesium. Um, and so like I take 100 milligrams of just magnesium citrate and I never get diarrhea from it or anything like that. And that's probably just, I just like to take 100 because, you know, most people are getting about 250 in the diet and you really want about 400. So I, I probably get, you know, I'm, for my diet, probably 300. So I, I just add 100 more to get that RDA. And I feel like that's, that's good for me. Now, some people really like bisglycinate or glycinate or malate or taurate. I, I mean, that's fine. They, they, they're all fairly bioavailable. There's not like a huge difference in, in them. But I'm telling you, if you actually look at the clinical studies, magnesium citrate probably has like the most evidence in regards to randomized control trials. And what do people like need extra magnesium for? Usually because they're not even getting the RDA is really what it comes down to because we've lost 80% of the magnesium from, from refined grains. Fruits and vegetables are now about 35% less compared to 50 years ago. So our foods are less than magnesium. And then numerous health conditions deplete the body of magnesium. So high insulin levels ca cause you to lose magnesium out in the urine. Insulin resistance prevents magnesium from getting into the cell for you to utilize it. Coffee increases the need for magnesium a little bit, not, not a huge amount, but it, it does. So I think um, just from like a need, a need perspective, our needs are higher from those reasons. So like a 30 year old female walking around, like, you know, average person, how much magnesium should they take per day? The RDA for a woman in that age range is about 320 milligrams per day. 320 per day. Is there a certain time of the day that you recommend taking it? I like to just take it typically um, not if you can, if you have, if like, let's say you need to consume a fair amount of magnesium, like 200, 300, 400 milligrams, because you're not getting a lot from your diet for some reason. Uh, lower doses more frequently are better than very large doses. So I typically try not to have people take more than 200 milligrams of elemental magnesium all at once, because you're probably going to induce some diarrhea. So that's whether the time of day really matters that much. I think as long as you can remember to take it, that's better than, you know, trying to take it at a certain time. But I do like to take magnesium with a little bit of food because the insulin spike helps to drive magnesium into the cell. So taking it uh, with a little bit of protein or a little bit of carbohydrate is going to help drive it into the cell a little bit better. Oh, interesting. And what about potassium? Do you need to take magnesium and potassium together? So magnesium controls potassium, like your, the body cannot retain potassium without magnesium. So typically when you have a low potassium level, many times it's due to actually magnesium deficiency. And that's why, you know, doctors, when they give these potassium supplements, they typically don't really work that well. They have to give massive doses and they, they don't even see that big of an increase in the potassium level because they're missing out on the fact that it's really magnesium that, that drives our potassium levels. You don't have to take them at the same time. Um, you should be trying to get your potassium from food and not really through supplementation. What are some of your, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask, what foods should you eat for magnesium? For magnesium? Um, actually, meat is a fairly good source of magnesium, including organs, um, because it's a very bioavailable form. You can also get a, a very bioavailable form of magnesium from mineral waters um, as well. 
the the plant sources of magnesium, like spinach is a fairly decent source of magnesium if you tolerate spinach. Um, a lot of people don't. Yeah, a lot of people just don't just either like the taste or they, the, the, the oxalates, they say, might mess them up. Um, I don't know. I've never had any issues taking spinach. It just sometimes I go through phases like I'm just kind of sick of eating it because it's, it's a little bitter. Bananas are a decent source of uh, magnesium and potassium. And then, I mean, meat is a great source of potassium, too, not just magnesium as well. And we always need, we always need to think about bioavailability. Like if you look at high magnesium foods, yes, nuts, chocolate, greens, they always typically come up, but they're somewhat lower in bioavailable magnesium, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. And what about children and magnesium? Like when should kids start needing magnesium supplements? I mean, to be honest, most of us are probably deficient and not getting enough magnesium, even as children. So, I mean... I think that, you know, a gummy supplement that has some magnesium for kids definitely makes a ton of sense. I actually think Garden of Life has a magnesium mm. um, drops for the, uh, I put like vitamin D drops and like probiotics and stuff in their water. I think that um, they sell magnesium. Okay. Let's talk about salt. Now, Jordan's mom is anti-salt. Like literally will go to a restaurant and say, please don't put added salt in my food. She turned me into like an anti-salt crazy person. I grew up, my mom like never cooked with salt. I handed in my cookbook. My editor writes back to me. She's like, Rachel, you forgot the salt in every recipe. And I was like, I don't use salt. I don't, I don't know. But I, I consume like all the processed foods. Like I drink bone, a bone broth every day. That's salty. Like I eat kimchi and whatever that's has salt, but let's debunk salt for every, anyone who came from the generation that salt is no good like convert me. Yes. Well, I think sort of like to level set, we've sort of been conditioned to think that salt is this poison when it's an essential mineral. So we need to understand that salt is made up of sodium and chloride, two essential minerals. Now, a lot of people will say, well, we never used to get salt. And now that we have access to it, um, we're consuming too much compared to like an evolutionary perspective. But we never would have consumed meat without consuming salty blood and interstitial fluid. You see a pack of lions, they're just covered in salty blood because you have to get through that in order to get to the meat. So now if you're eating a whole food diet, you're just eating the piece of meat. You're not eating the salty fluid. So you're actually on a low salt diet compared to evolutionary perspective. Now you lose on average a half of a teaspoon of salt per hour of exercise through sweat. So as humans, we traded off the benefit of being able to cool ourselves off through the loss of salty fluids. So it's like we can persist and hunt animals now because we have this unique advantage that most mammals do not. The only mammal that comes close is a horse, but they don't they can't even sweat as good as we can, which allows us to cool and keep our body temperature um, and regulate that in, in the heat, whereas like an animal in the desert, they can't go very long. They're just panting. They're trying to like find shade. We could just persist and hunt them for a long time because we could lose, you know, fluids. And so we were very susceptible to salt loss is basically what I'm trying to say as a species because of this, you know, loss of fur and ability to sweat salt. So if you are someone who sweats a lot or exercises a lot, you're going to need a lot more salt. And the guidelines never took that into account. And then coffee is a diuretic because it's a salt waster. Most people don't realize that. They think they're just losing fluid. 
it's actually, if you consume four cups of coffee, you lose a half a teaspoon of salt. Um, so sort of this is why in modern day where people are consuming caffeinated beverages, coffee, exercising, uh, numerous medications, you become depleted in salt very quickly. Whereas if you get too much for a normal, healthy person, you'll just excrete out what you don't need. So I would rather have more than and just excrete out what I don't need than not have enough because it's an essential mineral that my body cannot manufacture. So in the, most of the studies show that between 3,000 to 5,000 milligrams of sodium per day is optimal for cardiovascular health, which is essentially like one and a half teaspoons of salt per day is probably optimal for most people. People start demonizing salt because they might, let's say their hands start swelling after they eat salt. That's not, that's not supposed to happen. And if that happens, that means there's something going on in your body that shouldn't be, whether that's insulin resistance because you're over-consuming refined carbs and sugar, causing you to over-retain the salt, magnesium deficiency, causing that as well all these other factors. But if you eat a normal amount of salt and you just blow up like a balloon, don't blame the salt for what the sugar did or for what the carbs did. Because really, if you drop the refined sugar and carbs, you typically end up spilling any extra salt that you consume. Is there a difference in like quality of salts? Like if you go out to a restaurant and like the food's really salty versus, you know, putting one of like the salt, like um, sodium, like electrolyte type mixes in your water. Like, is there a difference in like the sources of salt that you're getting? Yeah, there can be a, a, a large difference depending on what salts you get. Like typically, you know, table salt is essentially 100% sodium and chloride, whereas like natural salts can be anywhere from, you know, maybe 88 to upwards of 95% salt and the rest, the five to 7% are all other trace minerals like um, magnesium, um, iodine, uh, calcium. Those are the three minerals that typically tend to be higher in your more natural salts. So I do like Redmond real salt because it does contain real iodine. They don't artificially add iodide to it. So yeah, there is a difference, but I would still say it's more important to get salt, whether it's table salt or a, a quote unquote unrefined salt, if you are sodium deficient, because being deficient in salt is worse than, okay, I'm getting my salt from table salt, which might not be as healthy as like an unrefined salt. How do you know if you're deficient in salt? Well, it's typically like a blood volume issue. So if you go from a seated to a standing position and you feel dizzy, if you have a big jump in heart rate from going from a seated to a standing position, you can feel very um, dizzy, exercise intolerance. It, it typically are, are some of the symptoms of uh, not having enough salt. Low energy, I know it sounds crazy. Cramps when you work out is a, a big sign of salt, uh, salt deficiency in the muscles. I'm trying to think if there's some other cues. You can't, like the blood level of sodium doesn't really tell you your salt status, that's usually a hydration status thing. Like if you over drink too much fluid, you'll have low sodium. If you're dehydrated, you'll have high sodium. So sodium levels in the blood aren't a good way to actually look for how much salt you have in the body because that's determined by really your hydration status. So in your book, uh, Wayne, you talk a lot about like hydration with salt, like pre-workout. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that only if someone's doing like a super intense workout? Or do you recommend like anyone who's doing any sort of like cardio or resistance training for like a 45 minute period, you know, pre-workout with that salt mix? 
I guess it depends on the person and the situation. Like if, if you work out fairly hard and you feel kind of dizzy midway uh, working out, then you might want to start taking one to 2000 milligrams of sodium and 10 to 20 ounces of fluid just to prevent the dizziness, prevent the feeling of faintness, prevent muscle cramps, things like that. Typically that's what I like to do. Like I, if I'm working out fairly hard, I like to consume between one and 2000 milligrams of sodium. Conversely, if you're someone who wants to get gains later on, you can practice dehydration acclimation, where essentially you induce mild amounts of dehydration. And then over time you get, you, you become better. Like your, your body basically adjusts by increasing baseline blood volume and all these other benefits. And really that's a lot of where the benefits of chronic exercise come from is you're inducing mild periods of dehydration and you become acclimated to that. And that's why you become better at exercise as you do it longer, because you're also becoming dehydrated, acclimated. Um, but for, if you are like um, preparing for a race that day, like you have um, a big competition, that's when you really want to take between 3000 to 4,300 milligrams of sodium in about 26 to 33.8 ounces of fluid respectively, because that's going to boost blood volume by eight to 10%. And that's the amount of blood volume that uh, drops in vigorous exercise um, through blood being pushed to working skeletal muscle and away from the heart, and then losing volume through sweat as you dissipate heat through the skin. So I guess to answer your question, high doses of salt prior to competitions, moderate doses to enhance and improve your workouts, and then basically no salt and only doing it as a rehydration strategy if you're trying to practice dehydration acclimation. Yeah, it's so interesting. Actually, we were talking to Rachel's dad and he said, you know, probably was this in the 80s or 90s that they had this whole salt thing and that it kind of went away. He used to drink yeah. like a salted water, like something. I was just on the phone with him before talking to him. He was just telling me about that. He's like, oh, how times have changed again. Like, you know, he's he's like 50, 58 and he uh, used to do that all the time. And now he drinks this disgusting concoction. I'm not even going to tell you, but um, before he works out, I'm like maybe you can not, got to start doing the salt now again. Yeah. So what are your takes on some of these like pre-workout um, supplements that are like all over the market. Like, I mean, I mean, they seem to have like a cult following, but like, yeah, are they really giving you any benefit or are they just messing with your system? So most of the, the pre-workouts are beta alanine, beetroot juice, um, are, are some of your typical ones that can increase exercise duration by about one minute. Uh, salt and fluids can increase exercise duration to believe by six to 21 minutes. So it's upwards of 20 times better than your typical pre-workouts. The problem is, is most people don't forgot about the studies and prior to having these electrolytes that are flavored, you know, it was very difficult to get an appropriate amount of salt into the body without actually feeling nauseous, but now you can do it through things like, like Redmond Relight is what I use. And so it's because they have like a little bit of stevia, I think it's only like hundred milligrams of stevia in it per dose, which is nothing like studies that have looked at stevia at even 1500 milligrams for like out to six months, not showing any harms on insulin sensitivity. 
Uh, so 100 milligrams is nothing. But it, it just allows it, makes salt so much more palatable. And so now you're starting to see the true pre-workout really is salt and fluids. Don't, don't let anyone tell you different because that's the only thing that boosts blood volume uh, when you match it, at least with the saltiness of your blood. And so nothing even comes close to being as good as salt and fluids. And so it's just now that we have these nice vehicles that we can just kind of pour a little scoop in that tastes really good. Now we can start finally taking advantage of it as a pre-workout, but most people don't consider salt as a pre-workout at all. Is that the only thing you, you uh, have before you work out? Like I'm assuming you work out in the morning, but. So uh, usually I I actually work out later in the day. um, Typically just because like, I like to work out pretty hard and my cognition is like I'm shot after a workout and I need like an an hour to really kind of recover. So like, I like to have like deep work, a lot of deep work in the, in the morning and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, usually most days, all I really need is salt and fluids. I can add some glycine to that to help the absorption of the salt, to reduce core body temperature, um, to reduce the risk of cramps. And sometimes I will add citrulline and arginine uh, as a nitric oxide booster. But I haven't, I don't really play with the beta alanines and things like that. I will do creatine after workout. It will do some whey protein if I lift a lot of weights too. Do you have a favorite uh, protein powder? Um, Mercola's whey protein is, is a very quality protein. Um, so I used to run like a decent amount. And then in the summer months, I would mix in my water, like a little bit of coconut sugar, salt, and like lemon and lime juice like if I was going to go on for like, you know, like a 10 mile run, does that help during the workout? Or is it really like before you start working out that you need to have the hydration and the salt solution? Ideally you want to do it before. I'm not going to say that there's going to be no benefit because after about 30 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes, you'll start getting some benefits. So if, if you do it mid workout and you still have 45 minutes left of working out, you're still going to get some benefits and it might actually prevent you from fainting at the end of your workout too. You would come home and like see stars sometimes after working out. I don't think you're actually scaring me that you're running 10 miles around a city. Well, it was also like like 90 degrees out. So it was a little, right. I stopped doing that because it was a little bit too much for my body, but, um, yeah. Rachel would always make fun of me because I was like mixing this crazy concoction in our uh, kitchen before leaving. Right. Well, that's so a lot of people also don't understand that you don't typically want to hydrate while you're exercising because gastric emptying, meaning the fluids going from the stomach to the intestine goes down dramatically because your your blood is flowing to skeletal muscle and not to the gastrointestinal system. So it's like everything is stagnant now in the stomach and fluids just sit in the stomach and it can actually cause bloating and worsen exercise performance. So you really want to drink fluids at least typically 60 minutes before. So it all gets absorbed and expands blood volume. And now it's not going to be sitting in your stomach. What, what are your take on a lot of these like electrolyte hydration packets that are now like coming out to the market? Like, I feel like a lot of them are like, always oh, the first ingredient is sugar or some sort of, yeah. sort of sweetener. Do you think that's just like a, like a selling technique or are they actually beneficial? So there is some, I guess, common sense, but also some science to the fact that, you know, adding maybe a tiny bit of glucose might help with the absorption of sodium. But the problem is, is if you spike the glucose levels too much, you actually increase diuresis and drop blood volume after an hour. So it's like, it's like a fine line. 
So that's why I like to add glycine instead. You don't need any sugar, any glucose. Glycine is just as good, if not better, at helping with the absorption of sodium. With that being said, the absorption of salt is fairly good, even without those things. It's just that some people, when you start taking higher doses, you might cause a little bit of diarrhea and you don't want that to happen. So typically you want some type of carrier if you're going to use high doses of salt to help increase the absorption and reduce the risk of diarrhea. But no, totally. Most electrolyte packets out on the market have very little sodium, have way too much sugar and don't work very well. Interesting. They're getting big hype right now. We, um, run a VC fund on the side where we invest in a lot of like various better for you CPG companies and the number of co- like new brands that are coming out as like these hydration packets. We just got some, some yesterday to test out. This was amazingly informative. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'd love to just wrap up quickly with a couple of our fireball uh, questions. Sure. Ask your first one, your favorite one. Um, do you do your own food shopping? Yes. Too. Like you personally go to the store? Yeah, like I personally will go to Wegmans. My wife, I mean, my wife does too. I'm not the only one, but yeah, yeah. I, I do a lot of. And if I order from like North Star Buys, and I'm I'm doing my own ordering too. If um, what's one one thing you outsource um, to make your life easier? I'm in like full control right now, so I, maybe I should be doing more outsourcing. <laughs> you could even be like you know a housekeeper, like you know a- anything like that. Nothing. I mean, some to like every now and then, like, and we haven't done it in a while. We'll have someone, yeah, like help clean the house, maybe like twice, two or three times a year. Um, but no, I mean, right now we're, we're doing pretty well. You're wild. That's crazy. <laughs> um, good for you guys. That's, so you don't outsource anything. That one thing you can think of. Not. What about someone about your lawn? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. I do outsource that. I used to have to mow the lawn in my house growing up. So I always, I'm always curious if anyone else makes their um, you know, seven or nine-year-old do it as well. What are your go-to podcasts to listen to? You know, I really should be better. I don't really listen to like every now and then, like I like Huberman, like interviewed me a little bit on salt when he was going to do his, he wanted some information on that before he did it. So I listened to that one, you know, he's got some good stuff, but besides him, I feel like, I feel like I can learn so much better on my own. Like, I don't know. I just, sometimes I, when I listen to these podcasts, it's the same thing over and over again. It's like the same people too, that I've heard a million times. So I like to like figure out new things that I haven't heard before. Mm-hmm. For, I agree. I also feel like having a podcast, it's hard for me to listen to other people's podcasts sometimes, but um, yeah. when I used to work by myself, I listened to them a lot more, but um, it is your last day on earth. What are you eating from breakfast through the end of the day? It's our last and my favorite question. Like, is your last day on earth? Like you have to have all your favorite things. Oh, it's going to be, uh, probably it's going to be surf and turf. That's what it's going to be. For breakfast? Oh, for bre- like, okay. So mm-hmm. uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Breakfast would probably be what I typically eat. Cause I love what I eat for breakfast, steak and eggs. <laughs> 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 Uh, my my wife would be like eating fried French crepes and chocolate and all that stuff. I don't care for any of that stuff. It would be basically the same thing I eat all the time, to be fair. So steak and eggs, what do you eat for lunch? What are your snacks? Um, so for lunch, it's usually some type of meat and then like Greek yogurt with like um, pecans and raw wild honey on top. 
And then dinner is usually probably like a four ounce organ blend, uh, which is like 75% muscle meat, 25% liver and heart. I know it sounds crazy. Like you get that. What's that? Where do you get that? Oh, I, I get it from North Star Bison. So, I, so oh, if, you, that. Okay. Yeah, if you if you use code Dr. James Dr. James, you'll give you ten percent off. Okay. But oh. I just make it into cheeseburgers, and you can barely taste the organs. It's like the only way I can really get down liver because it's tough. Liver's tough to eat. You give it to I your kids. So I was sneaking it in. Yes. Yeah. Um, my wife, for some reason, was like stop doing that. Like they're not eating it as well. So like stop sneaking it in. But um, yeah, I was sneaking it in for a while, and I was pretty happy about that. <laughs> uh, I want to try it for our kids. I just listened. I was for another member in China investing was talking all about like the importance of like the food your children are eating from like, you know, the newborn phase and, and on. I'm like, I need to give them some liver for their brain. And yeah. If, um, so if you're going to do it, yeah, mix one pound of the ground blend with one pound of ground meat. That way start them off slow and just like do a cheeseburger. I don't know if they eat the bun or not, but like, try to mask it as best you can at first. And maybe they will not, they might not even notice. I'm going to try that. I should try that. Well, thank you so much. Please tell everyone where they could find you and your um, library of books that you have. Um, my website is drjamesdenick.com. Uh, and then most of my books are on Amazon uh, or they can just order most of them off my website too. So Amazing. And, thank fo- you so and follow you on Instagram for some really good, uh, yeah, I know. I love your graphics. You have the most simple and like to the point Instagram that I've ever seen. But like, it's, very impressive. it's so resonating and it's so easy. It's, it's great. I, I, I love uh, following. Appreciate Thanks. that. Thank you. Thank you.